You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In January of 1863... Union General Nathaniel Banks was planning an attack on Galveston, Texas, from Union-occupied New Orleans. Softening up the city in advance of Banks' assault were a squadron of Union gunboats bombarding Galveston from the Gulf of Mexico. On the 11th, one Union steamer, the Hatteras, which had made a name for herself as an accomplished blockader, noticed a sail out to sea. The Hatteras didn't recognize the approaching ship, but when it changed course, the crew of the Hatteras assumed that they had spotted a blockade runner. The Hatteras set off to investigate, and the unknown ship appeared to be making a run for it. But the Hatteras was faster, or so it seemed. The truth was, and unknown to the Hatteras, the apparent blockade runner was only moving at half speed, giving the appearance of flight, but not actually wanting to get away. After a few miles chase, With the Hatteras now well outside the protection of her sister ships bombarding Galveston, the Union blockaders caught their supposed prey. Now within shouting distance, a Union naval officer, in a forceful, intimidating tone, demanded that the unknown ship identify herself. A large, tall man with a beard down to his chest answered in a booming voice, Her Majesty's Steamer Petrol, and what ship is this? The Union officer confidently replied, This is the United States steamer Hatteras. As the Hatteras continued to pull closer, the captain of the unknown ship, who had been staying safely out of sight, then asked the large, bearded man, quietly, so that the Hatteras could not hear, Are the men ready? He was answered with an affirmative nod. Then, shall we introduce ourselves? The captain spoke. The Hatteras was nearly alongside when the booming voice rang out again. This is the Confederate States steamer Alabama. A broadside volley followed, and the Hatteras was immediately injured. The two ships were roughly equal in size, but the Alabama had the advantage of the element of surprise and a rifled pivot gun. The battle, which was fought at about 100 yards, only lasted 13 minutes, and ended when the Hatteras surrendered as it began to sink, and the Alabama picked up the Union sailors to be dropped off at the next safe port. Only two men died in the fight, both of whom were Union sailors, but the fight between the Alabama and the Hatteras was a seminal moment in Civil War and naval history. As historian Stephen Fox notes, quote, It was the first time in naval history that a steam warship 
had sunk another steam warship. In the Civil War, it marked the first and last sinking at sea of a Union warship by a Confederate vessel. End quote. By that time, the Alabama had already earned a reputation as a successful commerce raider. Over the course of her slightly less than two-year career, uh, during which she never entered a southern port, the Alabama captured and burned 65 Yankee vessels, mostly merchant ships, and dished out an estimated $6 million, uh, more than $100 million adjusted for inflation, in damage to northern shipping. She never harmed the crews of her prey, uh, always dropping them off in a neutral port or unloading them on another ship, and didn't lose any of her own crew, aside from a few deserters, until the day she went down off the coast of France. Union Admiral David Dixon Porter would say of the Alabama's captain, known in the North as the Pirate Raphael Semmes, There never was a naval commander who in so short a time committed such depredations on an enemy's commerce and who so successfully eluded the vessel sent in pursuit of him. And objectively speaking, Porter was absolutely correct. For the most part, civilians in the North were spared the pain of war felt by the Southerners. The large northeastern ports stayed open, there weren't any severe shortages, and rebel soldiers only rarely set foot on Union soil. But the Alabama, both financially and psychologically, brought home the bitterness of war to Northerners, and especially Northern businessmen, and also made a symbolic statement against the power of the North's overwhelming naval advantage. The New York Herald expressed the frustration felt in the North over the Alabama's successful attacks and the Union Navy's ineffectual response. Quote, Can one vessel do as she pleases on the high seas, and we, with all our resources of ships, guns, men, and money, be unable to prevent it? The people ask the question, how long is this to last? Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part one of our look at the career of the infamous CSS Alabama. And yes, I said part one. I know I said in our last episode that this would be a one-parter, but once I got into putting the episode together, I, I realized that it was going to have to be two. Now, before we get going, I want to say that I am really excited to tell this story, and I hope everyone likes it. We tend not to think about naval warfare uh, too much when we think about the Civil War. But the Alabama had a truly remarkable career. And I think this might be one of the best episodes we've done. Uh, if you want to let us know what you think, um, you can reach the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. And one final note, the show has switched uh, hosting services and will no longer be using Podbean. So for any patrons out there making contributions to the show, um, please cancel the payments because uh, I won't be on uh, Podbeam any longer. Um, but know that your contributions are wholeheartedly appreciated. Uh, I might set up an account with uh, Patreon in the future, but uh, for now, your willingness to listen to me talk about the Civil War is all that I ask for. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Early in the war, many Southerners respectfully noted the toll that the stress of command seemed to be taking on General P.G.T. Beauregard. Within only a few months uh, after hostilities began, 
Beauregard's jet black hair had begun turning gray. The psychological pressure he was under was affecting him physically. Now, the truth is, Beauregard had started to go gray several years earlier, but it had only recently started to show because he no longer had access to the expensive French hair dye that he preferred. And that was due to the Union blockade, part of the Anaconda plan uh, to cut off the Confederate states from foreign trade. The blockade worked well, and it was devastating, leading to shortages throughout the South, especially as the war went on, and thwarting rebel attempts to import arms from Europe. At first, the Confederates responded by equipping blockade runners and issuing letters of marque, authorizing privateers to attack Union shipping. But blockade running was dangerous and inefficient, and privateers, which are essentially legalized pirates, were unreliable and had only limited effectiveness. And so Secretary of the Navy Stephen Mallory of Florida came up with another plan. The rebels would secretly contract with English shipbuilders to build commerce raiders, warships designed to destroy enemy shipping that were fast enough to avoid their Union counterparts. Where privateers set out to capture and sell their targets, the goal of the commerce raiders was to sink and destroy. The idea was to divert Union warships away from the blockade, thereby improving the success rate of blockade runners, and perhaps, more importantly, to give the Yankees a taste of their own medicine. Now, the obvious place to have the commerce raiders built was England. The British were the best shipbuilders in the world, though some New Englanders uh, would probably dispute that. And the animosity between the Yankees and the Brits meant that the latter wouldn't be overly concerned about acting against the interests of the former. But British neutrality laws forbid shipbuilders from constructing an armed vessel for a foreign power while it was at war. However, there was a loophole in the law as long as the vessel was not actually armed in Britain. The man charged with exploiting this loophole was Confederate Commander James Bullock, appointed as the head of ship procurement for the Confederate Navy. Bullock was a 14-year veteran of the U.S. Navy who had also worked in commercial shipping and had a lot of connections in England. Uh, Incidentally, he was also the uncle of future President Teddy Roosevelt. In June of 1861, Bullock contracted with John Laird & Sons, a Liverpool shipbuilder, to have a commerce raider constructed at the Birkenhead shipyards on the River Mersey. The contract was set up through the Fraser Trenholm Company, so that none of the paperwork would mention the Confederacy. Uh, The Lairds didn't ask any questions, but the purpose of the ship and Bullock's intentions were pretty obvious. And Liverpool was was also an easy pick for the ship's construction uh, due to its strong rebel sympathies. Captain Raphael Semmes noted, quote, Liverpool, if we accept some few houses engaged in trade with the northern states, is a secession city out and out, end quote. And though the point is debated by historians, England as a whole was pretty sympathetic to the rebel cause. The upper class liked the the southern aristocratic impulse, uh, which uh, with one earl commenting, quote, the dissolution of the union means that men now before me will live to see an aristocracy established in America, end quote. Uh, The London Times editorialized on the war, quote, Excepting a few gentlemen of Republican tendencies, we all expect 
we nearly all wish success to the Confederate cause, end quote. And from a realpolitik perspective, many British politicians uh, enjoyed the idea of the rival Yankees being brought down a notch. And the uh, free traders liked that the Southern politicians were generally anti-tariff. Even Charles Dickens expressed a preference for the South. Uh, the war was uh, nothing more than a Northern power play, Dickens thought. Quote, Slavery has in reality nothing on earth to do with it. The North, having gradually got to itself the making of the laws and the settlement of the tariffs, and having taxed the South most abominably for its own advantage, end quote. But, and this is a big but, the Palmerston government, though unofficially approving of the Southern cause, refused to take any public position and would not officially help. The South, thought Palmerston, would not be, quote, a bit more independent for our saying so unless we followed our declaration by taking part with them in the war, end quote. And that was a bridge too far. And because of that, the construction of the Alabama would have to be done on the sly. It was codenamed simply Hull Number 290, and the Lairds denied any knowledge of its intended use or its association with the Confederacy. The U.S. consul in Liverpool, though, Thomas Dudley, was no fool. Uh, through some detective work and a few well-placed bribes, he was able to find out the ship's true purpose. He began applying diplomatic pressure and maneuvering to have Hull Number 290 seized by the government as a violation of the neutrality law. But he ran into an unsurprising lack of interest in enforcement um, from the Confederate-sympathizing Liverpool customs officers. Still, Bullock kept up the pressure, going to London and eventually winning a legal victory. By that point, though, the ship was nearly complete. On July 26, Bullock, the southerner who had arranged uh, for the ship's construction, got a tip from a private but reliable source that he needed to get the ship into international waters within 48 hours. The next day, hull number 290 went out for a trial cruise, from which it did not return. An order to impound the ship arrived from London six hours later by telegraph. Now, it can't be said conclusively, but there is a very strong probability that the British government leaked its plan to seize the ship to Bullock in just enough time for it to get out to sea, thereby furthering the Confederate cause but avoiding a diplomatic row. Oh, Don, it appears as though we missed it, right? The ship the Lairds had constructed was a 220-foot-long, 32-foot-wide, 1,050-ton steam-powered sloop. It was built for speed and stealth, riding low to stay hidden. It had a retractable propeller that allowed it to move quickly under sail power alone, and a smokestack that could be collapsed to hide the fact that it was a steamship at all. The hull was built of English oak and the three masts of yellow pine. The ship's motto, God helps those who help themselves, was engraved on the wheel in bronze and in French. As Stephen Fox concludes in Wolf of the Sea, which I relied upon considerably in researching this episode, and from which um, most of the original sorts quotes that I'm using came from, quote, Henry Laird designed the Alabama for certain predatory functions, to chase, kill, hide, and run, and in the process to stay at sea for months at a time, end quote. After leaving British waters, the ship was equipped with British-built armaments, 
eight guns, three muzzle-loading 32-pound smoothbores on either side, and two pivot guns, one in front and one in back. The front pivot was a long-range Blakely-rifled 110-pounder with a 7-inch bore, able to rotate to fire across either side of the deck. Uh, This gun was a big part of what made the Alabama so fearsome. The ship had a 300-horsepower engine propelling a twin-blade brass screw that, when combined with wind power under favorable sailing conditions, could do up to 15 knots, and it could do 10 knots under sail alone. So it was a very fast ship and could outrun pretty much anything the Yankees could send after it. It held enough coal to run for 18 days straight, but usually relied on sail power except when in pursuit or escape, so as to conserve the coal. The engine was also equipped with a condenser that produced enough fresh water for the crew to drink, uh, allowing for extended voyages. Now, the crew was about half English and half Southerners, though there were a few other nationalities mixed in, and even a couple Northerners. The, the officers were almost exclusively from the South, though two volunteer officers from the uh, British Navy helped the Alabama um, in pretending to be British when it chose to do so. Bullock had hired a British captain and crew to sail the new ship to the Azores, where it was fitted out with the armaments, and where it would link up with Captain Raphael Semmes. The ship arrived in the Azores on August 10th, and Semmes and Bullock arrived on the 13th. Semmes' orders from Richmond were simply to do the greatest injury in the shortest time. On the 20th, the ship was christened as the CSS Alabama, and Semmes was impressed with his charge. He recalled, quote, She was indeed a beautiful thing to look upon. Her model was of the most perfect symmetry, and she set upon the water with the lightness and grace of a swan. When her awnings were snugly spread, her yards squared, and her rigging hauled taut, she looked like a bride, with the orange wreath about her brows, ready to be led to the altar. End quote. Now, Sims would prove himself a clever, wily captain worthy of the impressive ship. At 52 years old, he was a 35-year veteran of the U.S. Navy, a Mexican War vet, a moderately successful author, and an attorney. He was slim and below-average height with piercing gray eyes and the worn face of a man who had spent a significant portion of his life at sea. His trademark, though, was his well-oiled handlebar mustache, which earned him the name Old Beeswax among the men. During his time as a naval officer of the United States, Semmes failed to distinguish himself. Uh, David Dixon Porter remembered of Semmes, quote, He had no particular taste for his profession, but had a fondness for literature and was a good talker and writer. Although his courage was undoubted, his tastes were rather those of the scholar than of the dashing naval officer, end quote. And an acquaintance from England described him as one of the quietest and most unassuming men I ever met. He was nothing of the buccaneer, either in the mind or manners. Born in Charles County, Maryland in 1809, Semmes came from a family uh, with roots in Maryland stretching back to the Revolution. Like Stonewall Jackson, he was orphaned young and raised by several uncles, uh, one of whom helped him to secure an appointment as a midshipman in 1826. Now, the Naval Academy at Annapolis was not yet open, so this was uh, the ideal entry path for a young, aspiring naval officer. And he was a quick study in, in nautical matters and otherwise, and spent his off hours studying law so that he was admitted to the Maryland Bar in 1834. 
Along with his wife, Anne, who was the daughter of an abolitionist Cincinnati preacher and businessman, Semmes moved the family to Alabama in 1841 due to its proximity to the Pensacola Naval Yard uh, at which he was stationed. During the Mexican War, he served as first lieutenant, which second in command, uh, aboard the flagship of Commodore David Connor, which participated in the Veracruz landing. Uh, Semmes came ashore for the siege and received permission to travel with the army toward Mexico City rather than returning to sea. At Mexico City, he assisted U.S. Grant in placing howitzers on a church rooftop, uh, allowing the army to take the gates to the city, um, for which he was cited for distinguished gallantry. And following the war, Semmes focused on writing and law. He published Service Afloat and Ashore during the Mexican War in 1851, uh, the first edition of which sold out. Harper's referred to Semmes' literary effort as, quote, a work of standard merit and does honor to the growing literature of the West. We congratulate the noble-spirited author on the signal success of his work and hope that we shall again hear of his name in the field of literature, as well as in the service of his country. Uh, In his book, Semmes offered an interesting take on privateers, quote, They are little better than licensed pirates. There is a growing disposition among civilized nations to put an end to this disreputable mode of warfare under any circumstances. It had its origins in remote and comparatively barbarous ages and has for its object rather the plunder of the bandit than honorable warfare, end quote. Semmes had voted for Stephen Douglas in the 1860 election and opposed secession, But when he received a telegraph from the Confederate Provisional Government in February 1861, uh, calling on him to report for duty in the Confederate Navy, Semmes resigned his position in Washington uh, with the Treasury Department, overseeing the nation's lighthouses, and made his way back to Alabama. The Semmes family was deeply divided over the war. Raphael had a brother, Samuel, uh, in Maryland with, with whom he was very close, that was a strong unionist. And uh, Anne was as well. The two oldest sons served in the rebel army, uh, Oliver resigning his West Point appointment. Anne brought the younger kids to stay with Samuel, the brother, in Cumberland, Maryland, at the beginning of the war. Then they made their way to Cincinnati to stay with her pro-Union family. Uh, By 1863, though, Anne had switched her allegiances due to the rough treatment she received from Unionists uh, after her husband had earned his reputation along with multiple federal raids on her house, and eventually an order issued by General Burnside expelling her and the kids from Union-controlled territory. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three days after newly minted Confederate President Jefferson Davis took office, he assigned Raphael Semmes to travel north to buy rifles and weapons manufacturing equipment. He had some success at first, but after the firing on Fort Sumter made war appear inevitable, uh, willing sellers disappeared, and so Semmes returned south. 
In April 1861, he was appointed to command the CSS Sumter, uh, the first rebel commerce raider, and, and indeed the first Confederate ocean-going ship. The Sumter ran the blockade on June 30th, outrunning the USS Brooklyn after a four-hour race. Three days later, the Sumter took its first prize, the Golden Rocket, off the coast of Cuba. Over the next six months, the Sumter captured 18 northern merchant ships, uh, though several were carrying foreign cargo and had to be released. A small Union fleet chased the Sumter uh, around the Caribbean for a few months, nearly capturing Semmes at Martinique, but the Sumter proved too quick and her captain too clever for an easy capture. Uh, the Sumter then sailed northeast toward Europe, her captain concluding that it is of no use to chase sails anymore in these waters. The Yankees have nearly all disappeared. After being injured in a December hurricane and almost out of coal, uh, she went to port at Gibraltar for repairs and maintenance. A British reporter on the scene concluded uh, of the Sumter, quote, I could scarcely believe that so poor a vessel could have escaped so many dangers. She is cranky and leaky, end quote. Uh, Gibraltar didn't have the facilities for the necessary repairs, and her captain didn't have the money to pay for them anyway. So Sem sold the ship and traveled to England, then the Bahamas, uh, hoping to board a blockade runner and return home to see his family. Instead, while in the Bahamas, he received orders to report back to England for a new command. On getting the orders, Sems wrote to Anne, quote, You cannot conceive, my dear wife, how my heart yearns towards you and our dear children. It is now some 16 months since I saw your dear faces, and this time seems to me an age, doubly an age, as measured by my absence from you and by the many and stirring events which have passed. End quote. He arrived in Liverpool on August 5th and learned of his new assignment from Bullock. In a letter to daughter Electra, he foreshadowed his future reputation. Quote, I am sorry, my darling daughter, that I cannot inform you of my movements. I have something in hand of which you will probably hear in due time. But for the present, you must curb your curiosity. End quote. Semmes brought with him to the assignment First Lieutenant John Kell, a U.S. Navy vet from Georgia who had also served on the Sumter. Semmes had acted as Kell's attorney and an earlier court-martial and was impressed uh, enough with Kell to, to request his service on both the Sumter and the Alabama. Kell, the tall, strong, bearded officer with the booming voice who introduced the Alabama to the Hatteras in the intro, was charged with keeping discipline and enforcing Semmes' orders. He was well-liked by the crew, but known to be a man not to be trifled with. On August 24, 1862, Semmes and Kell took charge of the Alabama, as the British flag she had sailed under when leaving Liverpool was replaced with a Confederate seven-star battle flag. Semmes gave an inspirational speech trying to recruit the Liverpool sailors to join the Alabama's crew. Uh, one sailor recalled him saying, Now, my lads, there is the ship. She is as fine a vessel as ever floated. There is a chance, which seldom offers itself to a British seaman, that is, to make a little money. We are going to burn, sink, and destroy the commerce of the United States. Your prize money will be divided proportionally according to each man's rank, something similar to the English Navy, end quote. And with the help of a signing bonus and promises of double wages paid in gold and bonuses from captured ships, Semmes had enough men to set out, though the Alabama was sh uh, short of a full crew. 
the remainder of the crew would be recruited from the, the crews of captured ships. The Alabama set sail bearing northwest toward New England. At sea, Semmes had no contact with his superiors in Richmond and was therefore fully in charge. His only direction was to wreak havoc on Yankee shipping. The Alabama took her first prize on September 5th off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. After spotting a New England whaling ship, the Okmulgee, the Alabama ran up a British flag and was greeted with the Stars and Stripes in response. Moving in closer, the Alabama switched to the Confederate flag and fired a warning shot. The Okmulgee was in the process of harvesting a recently killed sperm whale, and so an attempt to flee was pretty much out of the question. Upon boarding, a rebel officer politely explained to the confused captain of the whaling ship that the Okmulgee was now a prize of the CSS Alabama, and that no one would be harmed as long as they cooperated. The boarding team scoured the whaler for food and other useful cargo. Then, after it had been cleared, the ship was set afire. The Okmulgee's crew spent two days as prisoners aboard the Alabama, before being sent ashore aboard the smaller whaleboats that had been spared from the flames. Over the next two weeks, the Alabama took eight more whalers and a Boston merchant ship. Twenty Yankee ships were burned over the first two months of the Alabama's career. Semmes began to amass a collection of chronometers, taken from each captured ship and kept in the captain's quarters as a trophy. Semmes, who had expressed um, his distaste for privateers just eight years earlier, eagerly and enthusiastically eased into his new life as a commerce raider. He observed, Chasing a sail is very much like pursuing a coy maiden, the very coyness sharpening the pursuit. On October 3, 1862, the Alabama captured the Brilliant, a New York-based merchant ship carrying agricultural products to uh, London. The Brilliant was only two years old, and Captain George Hager was a part owner. Uh, brought to Semmes' cabin for a hearing, uh, the captains of captured vessels were given the opportunity to present evidence um, that they carried foreign-owned cargo, in which case they would not be burned. Hager pleaded for clemency, first as a countryman, and then as a fellow seaman. Sam's heard him out, but he would offer no more mercy than the Union blockaders. The brilliant would be burned. Upon returning to shore, Hager, understandably upset, presented his story to the New York Herald, and the Herald ran a front-page story under the headline, Pirate of the High Seas. Captain Semmes was portrayed as an effeminate pirate, and the crew as nothing more than common criminals out to rob sailors of their personal belongings. Even more, Semmes was not a gentleman, which was a serious insult to any 19th century Southerner. The story spread throughout the North and eventually found its way aboard the Alabama. The ship's clerk uh, kept a file of the Alabama's news clippings, obtained from newspapers uh, borrowed from captured ships. Both captain and crew were angry and offended, over what they viewed as unfair treatment. After all, they had treated the captured ships no more roughly than Union blockaders treated blockade runners. Prisoners were fed and sheltered, and there was no bloodshed. Semmes viewed the Herald's account as an insult to his personal honor, and he sought to defend himself in a letter to his wife Anne. He declared the reports, quote, "...malicious and false. My prisoners are uniformly treated humanely, and sometimes, when they deserve it, kindly." I never permit them to be despoiled of their private effects, as they have represented. My crew is not a set of ruffians, but my ship is a well-ordered and well-disciplined man of war. 
and I make war according to civilized rules and with far more mercy than my enemies. I am doing what they themselves are doing, destroying the enemy's property, no more. End quote. Now, the Herald story led to a frenzy of newspaper reports about the Alabama throughout the North, resulting in a panic among the public. The Boston Post concluded, quote, Whether the authorities at Washington realized the fact or not, this is getting to be very serious business. What security is there for the millions of property which Boston has at this moment afloat in the Atlantic? It is a disgrace to our country that the career of this monster is not closed. And the New York Chamber of Commerce held an emergency meeting to prepare an angry resolution to the Navy Department. Now, notwithstanding the perceived affront to his honor by the Herald, Semmes recognized that the disparagement he was receiving from the Northern press was, in a way, uh, somewhat flattering. Uh, You know, like how fans at baseball games only boo the best ball players from rival teams, uh, not the replacement level players. And so Semmes concluded, quote, If I estimate the worth of my labors by the abuse which the Yankees heap upon me, they are certainly very great, end quote. The Alabama continued to hunt off the coast of New England and up around the maritime provinces um, through mid-November. The hunting strategy started with a keen-sighted sailor positioned on watch uh, high up the main mast. Uh, He would scan the horizon for puffs of steam, a sail or another sign of a ship. And when a potential target was spotted, the lookout would yell, Sail ho! And Semmes and the other officers would all report to the deck. And it was up to Semmes to decide whether the spotted ship was worth pursuing, taking into consideration the time of day, the weather, uh, the sea conditions, and the likely identity of the ship. Uh, More often than not, though, Semmes would decide to give chase, and the engines below were fired up, giving the Alabama a full head of steam to catch her would-be prey, uh, which usually had a several-mile head start. While in hot pursuit, the Alabama would sail under either a U.S. or a British flag. Once within shooting distance, Semmes would order a warning shot, a dry fire with no shell. Uh, The quarry might surrender at that point or decide to make a run for it. If the ship decided to run, the Alabama would follow, and Captain Semmes knew that his ship was faster than just about any on the sea. Inevitably, the Alabama would close the distance and fire a second warning shot, this one with a shell aimed to uh, intentionally fall short. If the prey continued to run, another shot would follow, aimed across the deck of the fleeing ship. And they all surrendered at that point, lowering the flag uh, of the now-captured ship. After the surrender, the Alabama would lower the Union, or British flag, that she was sailing under and raise the Confederate colors. Semmes would then send a well-armed boarding party, which would inform the ship's captain that it had been taken as a prize of the Alabama and that the crew were now prisoners of war. The boarding party next conducted a preliminary search, any newspapers, uh, books for the Alabama's library, and the captured ship's chronometer uh, for Sem's trophy case were all sought out. The newspapers were particularly important as they not only uh, allowed the crew to read about their exploits, but also provided the officers with news about the status of the war and frequently important intelligence as to the Union Navy's um, latest efforts to capture the infamous rebel raider. Next, the captain of the captured ship was brought aboard the Alabama for a hearing with Semmes. He was directed to bring along the documentation relating to the ship's ownership and cargo. Semmes would review the paperwork in his cabin with the captured skipper, 
And if the prisoner proved to Semmes' satisfaction that the ship was either foreign-owned or carrying foreign-owned cargo, it might be let go. A few captured ships were released, though most were condemned to burning. In the latter case, the next step would be that the captured crew was brought aboard the Alabama in lifeboats, while another, uh, larger boarding party scoured the condemned ship for anything useful. Uh, Food, coal, money, and any parts that the Alabama was in need of were typical spoils. After the booty was brought aboard, the final boarding party, the firing crew, rode out to the condemned ship. They would use lard, whale oil, or any other available flammable substance to facilitate a raging fire. Booze was occasionally used, but more frequently, any captured liquor uh, secretly made its way aboard the Alabama. Over Semmes' orders to the contrary. After opening up the hatches for ventilation, several fires were lit all at once, and the crews of the two ships watched the condemned ship burn and sink. If the vessel was particularly attractive or well-built, the Confederate officers would express to the prisoners their their regret at having to destroy a fine work of craftsmanship. But war is war, after all. The prisoners were confined, but treated fairly well. One prisoner recalled, We were placed in irons and treated very fairly, considering they were pirates. Captured sailors remained in captivity for usually between a couple days and a couple weeks, before being dropped off at a nearby neutral port or unloaded on another passing vessel, uh, which would also be neutral, or or else it would have met the same fate as the captured ship. Occasionally, a detained ship would get a reprieve, usually because it had women and children on board, and Semmes didn't want to bring them onto the Alabama. Uh, No southern gentleman would knowingly risk the safety of women and children. One captain remembered, I found that our women passengers were a great trouble to them, and I built good hopes from that that we should get clear, end quote. Uh, that captain's ship, the Tonawanda, out of Philadelphia, was released on bond, essentially the promise of the ship's owners to make payment to the Confederacy in consideration of the ship's release. The Tonawanda was released on an $80,000 bond, which is a tidy sum now and was enormous in 1862. But the bonds were more or less meaningless unless the South won the war. So effectively, they were uncollectible, and the bonded ships got off scot-free, though they might have lost some cargo if they were carrying anything useful. Now, the capture of the Tonawanda also led to a debated episode in the Alabama's career. A Delaware slave by the name of David White had been working on the ship's crew. After the Tonawanda was released on bond, however, David White was no longer with her instead having become part of the crew of the Alabama. Where the debate comes in is over the circumstances under which David White began sailing on the Alabama. Was he abducted, uh, kidnapped by the rebels as uh, spoils of war, as reported by the captain and crew of the Tonawanda? Or had he, uh, like several other crew members of captured ships, elected to sail on the Alabama in response to uh, recruitment efforts from the Alabama's officers? In support of the latter view are the facts that uh, White never deserted, despite having numerous chances to do so. Uh, Many of the Alabama's crew did desert, uh, which was why Captain Semmes was always looking to fill out his ranks from the crews of captured ships. And also the Alabama's records showed that White was paid wages equal to what was received by other crew members. Either way, in the second week of October, the Alabama sailed southwest from Newfoundland towards New York. 
Captain Semmes had cooked up an ambitious plan for a nighttime assault on New York City, planning to shell Manhattan. The Alabama alone couldn't have done any real strategic damage to the city, but that wasn't the point. The idea was to demonstrate that the war could touch close to home, even if you were a Yankee. Uh, The attack on New York never came to fruition, though, because the Alabama had the misfortune of sailing into a hurricane along the way. The ship was violently tossed around and battered for hours and took fairly serious damage. Afterwards, Semmes recorded in his journal, I must capture another ship now directly to enable me to repair damages and replace my boats. Fortunately, the hunting was good, even with the Alabama disabled, and the three ships captured over the next few days were cannibalized for parts before uh, meeting their fiery demise, uh, allowing the raider to continue her voyage. But... Uh, Still not at full strength and running low on coal, the New York plan was abandoned in favor of a trip south for a rendezvous with a uh, resupply ship in Martinique. The crew was disappointed to learn of the change in plan. One officer remembered, We were considerably startled and annoyed. To astonish the enemy in New York Harbor, to destroy their vessels in their own waters, had been the darling wish of all on board. As the Alabama's reputation spread rapidly, the pressure on the U.S. Navy to deal with the problem grew to the point that Navy Secretary Gideon Wells had to take serious action. The entire West Indies fleet was assigned to hunt the Alabama, along with two impressive warships, the Kearsarge and the Tuscarora. Over a dozen warships in all were taken off blockade duty to try to find Semmes, eventually leading to a a noticeable increase in the success rates of blockade runners. But naval officials still doubted their chances of catching Semmes. Charles Francis Adams' uh, opinion was typical, quote, I fear that neither of them separately, referring to the Kearsarge and Tuscarora, nor indeed both together, are any match for the shrewdness and enterprise of Captain Semmes, who has a vessel very capable of escaping from every risk of encounter, end quote. A a merchant ship captain who had spent some time as an involuntary guest aboard the Alabama described her as a splendid vessel and the fastest under canvas I ever had my foot on board of, and I have no doubt she is the same under steam, as she has very powerful machinery. I do not think there is a ship in our Navy that can catch her. The single most impressive ship in the U.S. Navy, the Vanderbilt, was added to the pursuit soon thereafter. The Vanderbilt was an ocean liner, which had been donated to the Navy by business tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt and refitted as a warship. It was both the biggest and the fastest ship the Union could send out, and it was armed to the teeth. The Vanderbilt was said to be the uh, only warship that Semmes truly feared, uh, because the Alabama could neither outrun it or beat it in a fight. But it was hard to keep at sea since it burned over 100 tons of coal per day. That's right, 100 tons per day. And Rear Admiral Charles Wilkes, who had been responsible for the Trent Affair and had claimed the Vanderbilt as his personal flagship uh, based on rank, was nowhere near clever enough to outthink Semmes. So if the Vanderbilt was going to find the Alabama, uh, it was going to be due to luck alone. And the ocean is awfully big. Rear Admiral Samuel DuPont described the Navy's frustration with the public complaints about the Alabama like this, quote, 
What vexes me about this vessel is that so few people know or understand what a needle in a haystack business it is to chase a single ship on the wide ocean. And the want of success is attributed to want of energy, enterprise, or skill. And somebody is blamed. End quote. Uh, that somebody who should be blamed, at least according to the New York Herald, was Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. The Herald complained, quote, He did nothing to prevent her completion, nothing to keep her from putting out to sea, and has done nothing towards her capture. End quote. Uh, according to the Herald, Wells was guilty of culpable neglect of duty with regard to the Alabama. But realistically, catching the Alabama truly was like searching for a needle in a haystack. Semmes was uh, too smart to stay in one place for too long, and he knew how to keep a low profile when he wanted to. And because telegraphs could not yet be sent uh, to his ship while it was at sea, uh, when the Alabama was spotted, by the time the information could be relayed to a warship capable of confronting her, uh, Semmes was long gone. And making things even more difficult, most of the reports about the Alabama's location that the Navy received were wrong, leading to scores of wild goose chases. Now, as we mentioned, the biggest effect of the Alabama was psychological. But the psychological effect also led to a very real financial one. Ships carrying gold from California were afraid to make the trip to New York and instead started bringing their valuable cargo to London which hurt New York financial markets. And the cost of shipping insurance got to be so high that many shipping lines uh, simply decided to wait it out and stop operating until the Alabama was no longer a threat. Many re-registered as British ships, or their frustrated owners sold out to British buyers, uh, usually at prices drastically below market. As a result, British shipping companies started taking over the market for moving U.S. exports. Semmes was aware of the effect that his efforts were having, and he was delighted. He wrote, quote, We have had a reasonable degree of success and are touching the enemy on two of his most tender spots. We are wounding his vanity and depleting his purse. End quote. The Alabama arrived in Martinique on November 18th, and Captain Semmes fended off a near mutiny uh, from drunk sailors upset that they were not permitted shore leave. After a group of armed officers restored order, the mutineers were put in shackles for the night and then released uh, upon sobering up. Semmes did end up granting a three-day shore leave after the rendezvous with the supply ship was completed, but not at Martinique, uh, where it would have been easier for the men to find trouble. Instead, they were allowed ashore at a nearby, barely-inhabited island called Blanquilla. On the 19th of November, the U.S. Navy cruiser San Jacinto spotted the Alabama in the Martinique Harbor. International law prohibited an attack inside the neutral harbor, so instead the San Jacinto waited just outside, ready to pounce as soon as the Alabama left port. But Semmes was too clever to be captured so easily. Repeating a maneuver that he had successfully employed on the Sumter, Semmes made a very visible evening movement toward the harbor's southern entrance and then, after nightfall, quietly doubled back and left through the northern entrance, uh, effectively giving the San Jacinto the slip. After leaving Martinique, the Alabama began cruising the West Indies and Caribbean, hoping to prey on the gold ships sailing from California. Instead, on December 7th, she captured a large passenger ship, the Ariel, sailing from New York to Panama. The Alabama initially hailed the Ariel by showing the Stars and Stripes, 
Then when a return greeting showed the same flag, the Alabama switched to the rebel colors and fired a warning shot. When the aerial tried to run, a second shot, hitting its mast, convinced the captain that it was time to surrender. The aerial carried 500 passengers, including 140 Marines, on their way to California. The Marines chose not to resist the hostile ship, though, uh, knowing that the likely outcome would be the aerial sinking and uh, accompanying um, civilian casualties. The boarding party made off with $8,000 in cash and another 1000 in silver that the aerial was carrying, but they were offended by the huddled civilians expecting to be robbed or worse. The Alabama's reputation as a pirate ship had preceded them. An officer gave an impromptu speech, intended to convince the passengers that no one would be harmed, and emphasizing that the crew of the Alabama consisted of soldiers, not pirates. His efforts were successful, and soon young women and girls were asking officers from the Alabama for buttons from their coats, souvenirs from their encounter with the fabled ship. The young officers, no doubt pleased with the rare opportunity to speak with ladies, obliged the requests. Now, Semmes wanted to burn the aerial, but he couldn't figure out a safe way to get rid of the passengers. So he released the ship after two days' detention. Uh, The occupants of the two ships had bonded over the period, and when the Alabama finally set sail, the aerial's crew cheered the Alabama, and the civilians waved fond goodbyes. Now, the haul from the aerial included a case of Drake's Plantation Bitters. Semmes apparently enjoyed the product, and he sent a note with the aerial's captain uh, for the Drake Company, with with Semmes' compliments and his request to, quote, freight each vessel likely to cross my path with the Plantation Bitters, and I will guarantee to place a case in the hands of President Davis before the 4th of March, end quote. The Drake Company knew a good marketing opportunity when it saw one, and was soon using Captain Semmes' signed letter in its advertisements. After the capture of the well-known aerial, uh, Semmes figured that the Caribbean would soon be swarming with U.S. naval ships, and so he decided to cruise uh, up into the Gulf of Mexico to lay low for a little while. And it was on January 11, 1863, that the Alabama approached Galveston, Texas, expecting to find the city under Union occupation, unaware that the city had recently changed hands. Semmes planned on getting in a few pot shots at the Union forces in the city, but instead found a a small Union flotilla bombarding the Confederates on shore. And it was at that point that he hatched his plan to surprise the Hatteras, which we described in the opening. Rear Admiral David Farragut, who was at that point in New Orleans, later recorded, quote, No one suspected for an instant that the Alabama was in this part of the world, end quote. And the fight with the Hatteras, however brief, reinvigorated the Alabama's crew. This was the kind of action that they had signed up for, and they had been itching for a real fight. Capturing merchant ships was fun and all, but true naval warfare was much more exciting. One of the officers remembered, The conduct of our men was truly remarkable. No flurry, no noise, all calm and determined. And Semmes knew that the Hatteras' sister ships would be after him in no time. So um, after picking up the Union crew, he fled southeast uh, with the Union ships in hot pursuit. Within a few days, the Alabama went to port in Kingston, Jamaica, where the Union sailors were dropped off without injury. The sinking of the Hatteras 
raised the profile of the Alabama and its captain even further in the North. And the incident was the top story in the Yankee media. A Philadelphia paper wrote, quote, He does everything with a daring and a celerity that have rarely been surpassed. Cannot some one of our naval commanders show himself a match for the pirate? It is disgraceful, end quote. But in the Southern papers, Semmes was a hero. Southerners, who were frustrated over the blockade that had crippled their economy, they loved seeing the Yankees wince. And they loved pointing out the Northern hypocrisy in denouncing the Alabama while attacking Southern trade. A Mobile paper wrote, quote, Off every Southern port for 18 months past, Yankee cruisers have been picking up every boat or ship that bore Confederate colors and confiscating them to their use. These are honest and gentlemanly sea warriors. Captain Sams turns the tables on Yankee ships. Sams is a pirate and a villain. End quote. The perception in the South was that Northerners, and especially New Englanders, only cared about money. So when word of the outcry from the Chamber of Commerce and the damage done to Yankee shipping interests uh, made its way to the South, uh, Southerners rejoiced. And numerous poems and songs about the Alabama and Captain Semmes began circulating throughout the Confederacy. And in the meantime, emboldened by the sustained success of the Alabama and the recent emergence on the scene of the CSS Florida, the Confederate Naval Department directed its agent in Liverpool, James Bullock, who had arranged for the construction of the Alabama, to commission four more commerce raiders from the Liverpool shipyards. And that's going to do it for part one of our look at the CSS Alabama. I've already started working on part two, so hopefully it won't be too long in getting out. But uh, of course, that depends on, on how work stuff goes. But we'll see. I also wanted to announce that I recently appeared on the Glenn and Dean podcast. It's a show done by uh, two comedians out of Cleveland. We talked about the Civil War and history in general, and it was a lot of fun. So if anyone's interested in hearing me um, give an interview about the uh, Civil War, I encourage you to check out the Glenn and Dean podcast. Uh, I'm sure you can just search for Glenn and Dean and find it on iTunes or, or wherever you get your podcasts. Otherwise, that'll do it for this time. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach me at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray with an E. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.